Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Amen. And it is officially Spooky Week. That's right. We're yeah. here for Spooky Week. We got Halloween coming up. In we do. just a couple of days, really tomorrow, depending on when you listen to this. Um, yeah. And boy, do we have all kinds of fun stuff coming up too. We do. For it. We do. We are, I feel like cramming a lot into this week, but mm-hmm. it's all fun stuff. It's all interesting. It's all fun stuff. Right. So I'm excited about it. This last week was crazy for us. We did, I feel like a whole year's worth of Halloween activities in like <laughs> two days. <laughs> yes. Yes. Where most people cram all of their Halloween stuff over the course of the entire month. We waited until October 27th. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I feel like we can check a lot of the fall activities that we missed during the first half of the month off our list. That did also make me a little bit behind on episode production, but worth it. Worth it. it and the episodes will be worth the wait, yeah. I feel like. so. I think so. They're always worth the wait. Thanks. <laughs> That's my opinion. Wow. But, thanks, Kev. Yeah. Because they're so good all the time. Oh my gosh, stop it. <laughs> Making me blush. Well, my dear, got to ask you the prime question. Mm. Everybody's asking, what are you drinking? If you're not drinking a pumpkin spice latte at midnight while you're recording <laughs> a spooky themed podcast, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm doing. That's what that's what I think the general consensus is doing is PSLs at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> All of our listeners are just sitting in the dark with a latte right now. That's right. Yeah. Or more realistically, probably sitting in their car, driving on their morning commute with a latte, mm. which makes a lot of sense. Going on a morning stroll in yeah. the crisp autumn air. Oh, yeah. Well, that's also super fun. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that. Or doing their dishes. I hear yeah. a lot about that. Yeah. Dishes I like to do dishes time. and laundry in a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's my fave. Mm-hmm. Well, I am a little, little different. Because it, we Omaha's felt a a, a chill. In the yeah, last it's been like winter the last few days. It's the worst. Right. So, uh, I decided to go a little bit different with my drink and get, or make rather, a hot chocolate mm. plus some Malibu. Is it's it? Kind of, oh yeah, you've had that it's before. Kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a coconutty hot chocolate, which is pretty good. Nice. So well, good. Yeah. You had to have a little boozy pick-me-up. Exactly. It's been a minute since I've had it, too, and I'm like, yeah, this this feels right. This also kind of feels like cozy drink season in general, mm-hmm. and there's there's such a mood that you can create with like a cozy drink and a spooky story and all that yeah. kind of stuff, which I really love. It's Me like too. a whole, it's a whole mood. It's well, I'm here for it, yeah. really. Good for you. <laughs> all right, my dear, you have a spooky... Spooky fact for us? Yes, it's kind of long, so bear with me. I do think this is a fun one. So the term jack-o'-lantern has been used in American English to describe a lantern made from a hollowed-out pumpkin since the 19th century. But the term originated in 17th century Britain, where it was used to refer to a man with a lantern or to a night watchman. At the time, the (laughs) British often called men who, like, when they didn't know someone's name, they would just call them by by common names like Jack. Yeah. So an unknown man carrying a lantern was sometimes called Jack with the lantern or Jack of the lantern. 
that makes sense too. Cause I think about like anytime that someone is like, like just a, a random comment of, all right, come on, Jack, let's get moving. Like right. my mom would say that in traffic. Like that sounds like something that your mom would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can hear her saying it. <laughs> so, come on, Jack, get over. <laughs> that's like a, that's like a centuries a old <laughs> tradition. Hilarious. I love yeah. it. Super funny. But yeah, I thought that was a fun one. That's a fun one. I do like that. That's some good Halloween trivia, I feel like. Yeah. A I feel lot like of that's pretty much that what one. I've done. I wouldn't, I, I mean, these are, are, they are spooky and they are facts, but I do feel like they're more like Halloween themed trivia, but whatever. That's, that's <laughs> what a fun fact is It'll really. Do. At the end of the day, all fun facts are trivia facts. Yeah. They're pretty much the same thing. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> all right, love. Uh, this is a rare occasion that I'm actually not totally in the dark coming in on an episode. You're pretty in the dark. I'm pretty in the dark, but I know what this episode's about generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really curious to see what direction we're going with it, but I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to let you take us away. What are we, what are we doing this week? Okay. So I thought that we should wrap up the spooky season by talking about one of the most historically rich and thoroughly haunted locations in the United States, Appalachia. As we've mentioned before in a previous episode, Appalachia encompasses a huge portion of the United States, stretching through 13 states along the eastern United States coast. In all, Appalachia stretches for 250,000 square miles in, yeah, 13 states, like I said, and is home to more than 25 million people. And while it may be dismissed by some as too rural or too rugged or what have you, many others know that it is an ancient land rich in history with a beautifully diverse culture and unique approach to the arts. And more relevant to this podcast, it's also rich in myth and folklore. It's the home base for countless legendary cryptid stories, other legends, hauntings, and terrifying paranormal phenomenon. And so that's what we're going to dig into today. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Okay, I'm excited. Okay, so let's start with a brief history of Appalachia and take a minute to learn a little bit about the people who have called it home for centuries. For starters, due to its vast area, there are many different environments and ecosystems all throughout Appalachia. Mm -hmm. From towering evergreens to thick deciduous forests, Appalachia is home to a ton of biodiversity in its plant and animal life. It's home to many species of mammals, from bears, elk, deer, bobcats, and other more sizable mammals, all the way down to the five species of tree squirrels that call the area home. (laughs) That's kind of cute. Five whole tree squirrel species. I love that so much. That's almost a fun fact in itself. It feels like it should be. (laughs) There are also various species of birds, reptiles, and amphibians. And another fun little fact is that Appalachia is considered to be the salamander capital of the world because it's home to the most species of salamanders compared to anywhere else in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. I learned that. Brand new fact. Yeah. So the Appalachian mountain range is old, like old enough to have formed a mountain range. Then the range completely disintegrated due to tectonic plate shifts. And then they reformed once again, all over the course of several hundred millions of years. What? If you compare the Appalachian mountains to the other two mountain ranges found in the United States, they're not as tall and appeared to have more rounded tops as opposed to jagged mountain peaks like those found in the Rockies, hmm. which is due to its age. I learned that the rounded tops indicate a millennia of erosion and rebuilding cycles that take place in mountain ranges, which I thought was really cool. Whoa, yeah. And I also read that, I didn't write this down, but I read that the Appalachian Mountains are older than the rings of Saturn. What? They're like old, old, wow. old. Wow. 
And like they were here, like Pangea and all of that. They Mm -hmm. were here. They were just here. They are so old. That's crazy. It's mind blowing. Hmm. It's hard to fathom how old these mountains are. So just so we can gather a little bit of an understanding of the area, considering how massive it is, it's generally split into three regions, northern, central, and southern Appalachia, with the central and southern regions being the areas that people are most often thinking of when they're considering the unique Appalachian cultural uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. And like I said in the intro, this is a 250,000 square mile region when all 13 states that Appalachia touches are considered. And so just for some perspective, the entire United States has a land area of 3.5 million square miles and has a water area of more than 277,000 square miles. So Appalachia makes up a considerable portion when you consider its size compared to the country as a whole. Yeah, jeez. In all, Appalachia contains six national parks, eight national forests, two national wildlife refuges, uh, scenic driving routes, the Appalachian Trail, which stretches from Maine all the way down to Georgia and numerous state parks. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so it's it really is a very rich, super diverse section of the country. Yeah, and it's also really beautiful. So beautiful. I, I've had the pleasure of driving through um, bits and pieces of it mm-hmm. over the years. And um, I'll never forget there was a time, I think I may have told the story the first time we talked about Appalachia, Appalachia. Mm-hmm. I always say Appalachia. So mm-hmm. we're a house divided on that, but. <laughs> we shouldn't um, be. Well. Look it up, Kevin. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was driving through North Carolina mm-hmm. and I look over and the way that I see, like I'm like driving on kind of a, a mountain road. Mm-hmm. And I look over and I see the mountains next to me, but they're a little bit below me even. Yeah. So like you, I can see the the round tops of these mountains. Yeah. So that's actually really interesting to me to think about. And I can see the way that the clouds, uh, shadows land. And it's just, it was really unique. It's something I'm not used to seeing that. Right. And so We're in anytime, a very flat area. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> anytime that I have witnessed that, um, it's been really notable. And that was the first time. Yeah. So it's really cool. And I've got more. Appalachia. It's Appalachia. <laughs> Say got, it right. I've got more apple stories. Um, oh, Kevin. And I've <laughs> <laughs> got lots more, um, but I won't share them right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's believed that indigenous people began settling in Appalachia about 16,000 years ago. When European colonization began, there were several tribes living and thriving in the area, including, but certainly not limited to, the Iroquois, the Powhatan, the Shawnee, and the Cherokee peoples. Mm. In the 1700s, settlers began making their way into Appalachia, with some of the earliest European settlers being Scots-Irish and German. There were also enslaved Africans and various Native American tribes all living near one another during this time. And so there was a natural blending of cultures and traditions. And slowly over time, this would result in an interesting com- like conglomeration of all of these cultural influences, hmm. which would inspire a wholly unique new set of traditions to blossom and take root across the whole of Appalachia. On top of that, Native Americans, particularly the Cherokee, initiated a decently healthy trade relationship with the early settlers. They taught them how to hunt and how to cultivate the land, what crops to plant and when, and that sort of stuff. 
In return, settlers offered trade of material goods and resources that allowed the Cherokee to establish more sturdy homes, which came in handy, especially Mm -hmm. during the harsher winter months. Unfortunately, however, it was certainly not all rainbows and sunshine, and plenty of conflicts and fierce battles would break out between the colonists and the Native Americans. All throughout the 18th century, a series of shady treaties slowly but surely chipped away at the Native Americans' claim to their own land. By the mid-1830s, they relinquished their rights to all land east of the Mississippi River, and by 1838, most of the Cherokee and other remaining tribes were rounded up, forcibly removed from their homes, and were made to march all the way to Oklahoma, a dark scourge on American history infamously named the Trail of Tears. Mm -hmm. As all of this was going on, a rebel band of about 1,000 Cherokee ran and hid in the Smoky Mountains and were eventually able to secure somewhere around 60,000 acres of land for tribal ownership by the year 1878, land that would become the Kuala Reservation, which still exists today. Wow. Yeah. So they've maintained that for a long time. That's really cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, it stinks it's, that it's, they... It's a sad reason, but it's like, okay, there's like a... There's a little bit of a punk rock spirit about it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that they're like, we're not going anywhere. Right. This right. is ours, and we're going to get it back. Right. They deserved all of it, but we're right. not going to get into that That's here. That's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> Beginning with the arrival of European settlers in the 1700s and over the next couple hundred years, the area continued being settled and continued to grow. By the mid-1800s, there were handfuls of small towns, trading posts, and pockets of small family clusters that called the land their home. One thing that was significant about this is what's called island communities. Island communities were groups of two to three homes that were in easy walking distance from one another, but were still separated by ridges and hills. Typically, the two to three homes would be inhabited by a family and then extended family. So mom and dad would have their home, the eldest son and his family would have uh, like another house in that mm-hmm. same community, yeah. and then the youngest daughter and her family would have the other one. Yeah, a little bit of a compound like kind of a sort kind of. of a deal. Yeah. But like far enough apart that they could still establish like their own thing. Yeah, yeah. Overall, island communities generally had less than a dozen homes in each of them. Commercial settlements would develop at a crossroads, at a gap, or out the mouth of a large hollow, and they were pretty small as well. These would typically be made up of a few houses, a mill, a church, and a school, and then maybe a few more small businesses, and that's it. Yeah. And with these settlements came more and more people. By the late 19th century, the southern Appalachian area had the highest population growth rate in the country. Wow. By 1900, the average family farm in Appalachia was mostly self-sufficient, which is why many people have long since held citizens of the area as tough, independent, hardworking, and committed to their family and to their work. But despite being home to historically capable and respected people, the people in the most rural areas of Appalachia have oftentimes been unfairly written off by some people as backwards or as hillbillies. Mm. I don't even really have to say more about that because I feel like almost everybody can get a picture in their head of what the more isolated family units in the most remote parts of Appalachia are like, whether it's fair or not. Right, yeah. And that kind of makes me sad a little bit. Just like a little bit. Considering the makeup of a typical family unit or community, and considering the history of Appalachia as a whole, this has proved to produce a whole lot of tradition, a unique culture, and most relevant to today's episode, tons of incredible folklore, tales of monsters, bizarre animals, witches, ghosts, and so on. Hmm. And so let's get into some of those. Okay. 
So I want to start this section off with a little bit of a disclaimer that there are some hugely famous stories of paranormal activity and strange entities from Appalachia that we won't be talking about, either because we're going to do a full episode on them later Mm -hmm. or because we've already done full episodes on them. And so the ones that we have done would be Mothman, the Flatwoods Monster, the Greenbrier Ghost, and the Bell Witch. Oh, yeah. If you want to hear about those, check out episode 20 for the Bell Witch, 24 for Mothman, 87 for the Greenbrier Ghost, and then you can check out our Patreon for coverage of the Flatwoods Monster. That's right. Don't forget to hop on that Patreon because uh, those episodes are amazing. Those and are. that one is pretty cool. That is a really unique story. Yes. So, yeah. And I mean, on top of stories that I already have plans for. There's just so Mm -hmm. much. It was really hard to pick, honestly. We could probably turn Appalachia into a series if people dig it. So (laughs) anyway, with all of that out of the way, let's dive in. So we're going to start this off strong with a few odd creature stories, starting first with the Ravenmocker. The Ravenmocker is a fearsome figure from Cherokee mythology. There are a few ways that this being is described, but it's often compared to the famous Navajo figure, the Skinwalker. The Ravenmocker Mm. is a terrifying, shape-shifting witch who robs the sick, elderly, and dying of their lives. And with each year the victim would have lived, the Ravenmocker has that added on to its own lifespan. So they, like, still steal your years. Yeah, creepy. They take the form of your average raven during non-hunting times but they also typically appear as a withered old man or woman. But when they're on the hunt, they morph into a fiery winged humanoid bird creature, emitting a loud and distinct call that signifies to the hearers of the call that death is near. When they find their target, they sit on the head of the victim and remove their heart from their chest, all without even breaking the skin. They then consume the heart and receive the life force of their victim. It's also said that the creatures are invisible during their feeding time and can only be seen by a medicine man under certain circumstances. But even with that, the medicine man who sees the Ravenmocker will be dead within seven days. Jeez. Due to the potency of this character, Cherokee medicine men would often stand guard over their sick, injured, or dying in order to protect them from the Ravenmocker. While there are not many recorded sightings of the creature, there are still stories and videos of a strange Birdman creature that some believe to be the Ravenmocker. Weird. Yeah, isn't that like super... That's a terrifying figure. Yeah. Regardless of if people are actually seeing it. Like that is a crazy, scary creature from mythology. It it also reminds me, I mean, it's way more intense than Mothman, but it kind of has some similar things to Mothman, so I'm... I'd be curious to know if there's any anybody out there that would overlap them or if there's like, nope, these are two totally different unrelated things. But Well, Mothman, I mean, we could argue about this. Mothman didn't hurt anybody that true. we know of. Some would argue that he did. Yeah. But others would argue, no way. He was trying to help everybody. He was, a, he was an omen of the impending dangers. Mm-hmm. He but, was just a messenger. Yeah. But yeah. we'll see. Okay. One day we'll we'll all find out together, I think. Mothman is going to, at some point, come back and just let us know. Yeah, he has to. Anyway. <laughs> so next we have the Silver Giant. Sometime in the mid-20th century, reports began coming in about a giant 10-foot humanoid creature with shaggy silver fur covering its body and eyes that glowed in the dark. And it's believed to be a solitary predator that spends its days and nights stalking the forests and mountain like mountainous areas across Appalachia mm. on the hunt for its next meal. Ooh. Be it a pet, 
livestock, other wild animals, or maybe even people. Generally, it's described as being a cross between a massive bear and a primate, and seeing it is considered to be a bad omen, indicating that death or some other form of serious trouble is impending. It's also described as incredibly strong, agile, and fast, especially considering its size, and it has even been featured in an episode of Travel Channel's Mountain Monsters. Oh. Yeah, so like I, people have talked about this one. I was about to say, I feel like I vaguely recall this description. Mm-hmm. At some point, but like I, I didn't know what it was called or. It's sort of werewolfy, and they also have yeah. another one. I didn't write about it, but there's another story that's very similar to this one hmm. that is a little bit more canine-like, a little less bear-like. But this one's kind of like a like a werebear on steroids. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think it's huge. The one that I'm thinking of is a little bit more more ape-like. Sure. Which that's. Gets into all sorts of things, but yeah. Really Speaking of ape-like, oh okay. What the next segue. legendary figure that we're talking about, very briefly, is Bigfoot. Oh yes. So stories of a creature matching the description of Bigfoot have been told all around the world for literally hundreds and hundreds of years, if not even longer than that. Indigenous tribes all throughout Appalachia were no exception to this, claiming to have encountered a large man-like creature that would typically be covered in hair that lived in the most heavily wooded parts of the forest. So these Mm. figures, whatever they were, would sometimes stalk villages at night. They were said to scream and steal the livestock, and many tribes held to the belief that whatever this creature was, it had the ability to shapeshift. And while the Bigfoot legend as we know it is typically associated with the Pacific Northwest, there have been thousands of reports, many of which are shockingly credible, of Bigfoot sightings in Appalachia. So I'm going to pick a really recent one that I found to share. Mm. How recent? What recent recent? April of 2023. Ooh, dang. Okay. Yeah. So this was just a few months ago. Okay. So three friends from South Central Pennsylvania were hiking in April of 2023 near the Appalachian Trail near Duncanon, I'm going to call it. Sure. Yeah. All of these people were experienced hikers and were familiar with how to navigate the outdoors safely. When they reached the Hawk Rock portion of the trail near Duncanon, which is also located near a creek that flows through the woods and into a river, and it's a pretty like popular camping spot. Hmm. So the friends got to this place and set up a modest campsite for the night. They were about two miles away from their vehicle, but this was a normal thing for them to go and do together. As the three were sitting around a campfire, they noticed that it was exceptionally dark that night, with no bright stars or light from the moon accompanying them. They were chatting about Bigfoot and sharing stories of their own encounters as all three of them believed that they had seen it before while they were out on the Appalachian Trail taking a hike. And at some point during their conversation, it turned to the infamous Sierra sounds. So for those who don't know, the Sierra sounds are the very, very famous audio recordings captured by two dudes. Uh, One was Al Berry and the other was a researcher by the name of Ron Moorhead. Hmm. So I'm not going to do a whole deep dive in that, but I do think that we should play just a portion of them to kind of set the mood for the story. So let's go ahead and do that. Okay. Rain for night, Bill.
Yes. Yeah, so that's just a portion of the Sierra sounds. Oh my gosh. Have you ever listened to those? I have never listened to that before. Really? The closest I've ever had to hearing anything like that is the Discovery Channel's Finding Bigfoot. I think they probably did use some of these, I would imagine. Could be. Because this was like pretty formative in Bigfoot research. Because like they would initiate by knocking and then they would hear the knocking off in the woods. Mm-hmm. And they there were moments where whatever it was that was out there would hide from them if they would try and get out of their little like tent that they made. Like oh. they would not make noises at all. Like if they were going to adjust the microphone that they hung from the tree. Yeah. The noises would stop completely. Everything would be quiet. But then the second <laughs> they'd go back in, they would hear the noises and the knocking again. And then there were p- parts in there, which we heard where whatever these things were, it's, it was like they were trying to communicate. Yeah. And you could hear the two guys kind of talking back and forth as whatever it was, was communicating. Right, right. So bizarre. That is so weird. So one of the friends in the group had actually never heard the Sierra sounds for himself. Like he knew about him, but he never listened Mm -hmm. to them. And so they decided to play a recording after doing a couple knocks on a nearby tree. They were like demonstrating like this is what they did. And then they started playing the audio. Within less than a minute, a large rock crashed into the creek less than 30 yards away from their camp. And whatever it was that had thrown the stone, it was between the friends and their car. Meaning that if they needed to run, they would be forced to run away from town and away from their vehicle. Oh. It then began making a loud whooping noise. Very similar to the ones that we just listened to. I just got goosebumps. That's crazy. Seconds or minutes of tense silence passed before the creature threw another large rock into the creek. And then another and another. And the friends all described being hit with a feeling of intense dread all at the same time. They quickly packed up their camp and started making their way in the direction of their car, but also in the direction of the splashing. Mm -hmm. They walked along the creek with its banks a measly five feet to their left. And as they walked, the whooping and splashing continued, but the sounds remained parallel to them as they walked, meaning that whatever it was that was making the noise, it was intentionally following right alongside of them as they walked, just on the opposite creek bank. Oh my gosh. Strangely though, they could hear no footsteps, no crunching of leaves or twigs, no movement whatsoever. Just the sound of a large stone splashing here and there with the occasional whoop that sounded all too similar to the Sierra sounds. (laughs) They all focused their attention on the path in front of them, doing everything they could to avoid looking at the source of the noise. Finally, they were about 50 feet away from their vehicle. They noticed that there was a light fog over the water and they still couldn't see what was causing the noise. And thankfully, they made it safely to their car, spending the next several hours attempting to rationalize their experience. And with all of them being convinced that, once again, they had encountered Bigfoot. Wow. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. 
American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. So I do feel like just this is kind of a sidebar, but I do feel like we're at the point in our show that it's like actually not okay that we don't have a full Bigfoot episode. <laughs> like we really need to have a full I, Bigfoot I mean, episode. I mean, I, I agree. We've teased a Bigfoot episode it's just such times. a huge topic. Yeah. Because there's so many different ways that Bigfoot's covered and so many things that people believe to be like canon lore that I'm like, I want to do this, but I feel like it's a huge undertaking. Sounds like it's but two anyway, episodes. <laughs> a five episode Bigfoot yeah. series that barely scratches the surface. <laughs> but yeah, what do you think of that story? Uh, well, that's absolutely crazy. Uh, and th- that would be like, as you're telling it, I'm getting the f- the feeling of like, the dread of it and mm-hmm. um yeah i'm i'm like that's wild i don't know that i would be able to not look i know i feel like i would be way too inclined to like i need to see what's doing this i know that's really f- freaky i know they're all like <laughs> it was weird though because they never the the writer of or this whoever submitted this story mm-hmm. they all said that he said that none of them had spoken with each other about not looking, but they all had kind of intuited that they shouldn't look, mm, which is also super fascinating that all three of them had that same thought without ever communicating it to each yeah. other. Very, also, also kind of a bummer that not one of them was like, I just need to see it. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But, oh man, that's a freaking crazy story. Well, and they made the clarification too that it wasn't like small rocks being thrown into the creek. It was like boulders. Yeah. It was like like crazy loud splashes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, creepy. <laughs> I do like that one. I do too. So next we have the story of the Siren of the French Broad River. In the 1896 book Myths and Legends of Our Own Land, author Charles Montgomery Skinner writes this, quote, Among the rocks east of Asheville, North Carolina, lives the Laura Lee of the French Broad River. This stream, the Celica of the Indians, contains in its upper reaches many pools where the rapid water whirls and deepens, and where the traveler likes to pause in the heats of afternoon and drink and bathe. Here, from the time when the Cherokee occupied the country, has lived the Siren. And if one who is weary and downcast sits beside the stream or utters a wish to rest in it, he becomes conscious of a soft and exquisite music blending with the plash of the wave. Looking down in surprise, he sees, at first faintly, then with distinctness, the form of a beautiful woman with hair streaming like moss and dark eyes looking into his, luring him with a power he cannot resist. His breath grows short, his gaze is fixed. Mechanically, he rises, steps to the brink, and lurches forward into the river. The arms that catch him are slimy and cold as serpents. The face that stares into his is a grinning skull. A loud, chattering laugh rings through the wilderness, and all is still again. End quote. (laughs) That sounds like like a poem from like the 1700s is what it sounds like. Yeah, that was in a book written about... The Siren of the French Broad River. Yeah. So it does sound like obviously fictional to say right, that there right. are mermaids in North Carolina. 
But it's not just the French broad that has reported sightings of the mythical creature. Perhaps even more famously, there have also been reports of mermaids at Cape Fear in Chatham County, North Carolina. Hmm. So there's been like longtime mermaid lore in North Carolina that I like, I'd heard about the Cape Fear mermaids. I never really looked into it, but I didn't realize that this is like several hundreds of years old. Well, and that's crazy because I feel like I personally don't, don't recall American mermaid stories. Yeah. I think of European Mm -hmm. and even stuff that's like along the coast of Africa and stuff like that. Right. Like I, I, so it's, and maybe, you know, that's the bias of living in America is all of the cool things. Aren't here. (laughs) Yeah. They might as well just be foreign (laughs) because if they're here, then they're, they seem less interesting, I guess. I don't know, but yeah, of course it makes sense that there would be a folklore of that. Mm-hmm. here too because there there's been people here for a long time yeah yeah <laughs> so that's, yeah that's crazy though hmm. yeah so the french broad mermaid was was there apparently for like 300 years this has been or two 250 something like that i think since the mid 1700s to early 1800s people have been talking about a mermaid in the french broad river hmm. so that's a thing wild yeah so the haw and the deep rivers meet at the mouth of cape fear otherwise known as Mermaid Point. Sightings of the Cape Fear mermaids took place in the 1700s. During the economic boom that was going on at the time, new settlements were popping up in the area. And so one man by the name of Ambrose Ramsey saw an opportunity to make some seriously hefty money. So he opened a mill in the nearby town, and just a short distance from where the Deep River and Haw River meet to form Cape Fear, he also opened a bar, which he named Ramsey's Tavern along the banks. Hmm. And patrons walking past Cape Fear on their way home from Ramsey's Tavern began reporting something very strange indeed. There on the sandbar at Cape Fear, mermaids could be seen in the moonlight, brushing their long, beautiful hair. They could be seen Hmm. laughing, playing, singing, and splashing together. Night after night, witnesses who were almost exclusively Revolutionary War soldiers reported seeing the mermaids, but the beautiful creatures would quickly dive under the water and out of sight if any humans approached or called out to them. It's believed Mm. that the mermaids had ventured so far upstream in order to rinse the seawater from their hair. Unfortunately, in the late 19th century, both the sandbar at Cape Fear and Ramsey's Tavern were swept up in a flood. And with the construction of dams along the rivers, it's believed that the mermaids' access to the rivers has essentially been cut off. And so while it's unlikely that you'll see a mermaid if you visit Cape Fear, if you stop near the area, you'll most certainly hear about the legend. Yeah. Huh. That's okay. So what's really interesting to me about this is this strange combination. (laughs) <laughs> of the Revolutionary War, the the pilgrims coming to America, and mermaids. And it's just like... I mean, why not? Right. Well, and once again, <laughs> those are the kinds of things that you... Like, you can envision a big boat and, you can, and, and mermaids being around it. You can envision, mm-hmm. you know, British soldiers... But it just feels different when it's like, oh, wait, that's here. Like, right. that's interesting. You're, coming, you're, you know? co- you're really hanging on that point. It, it really like, it messes with my brain a little bit. Yeah. So, but in a good way. So anyway, I thought that was a, a, a it's worth pointing out, I feel like. Yeah. Because no, anybody who, who's like me is going on like, excuse me, we have mermaids here? Like. <laughs> Since when? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> so on the topic of mythical creatures, it's been believed for many centuries that fairies are alive and well in the Appalachian Mountains and in the forests surrounding them. Ooh. A figure in Cherokee folklore is the Nunehi, or those people who live everywhere. In Cherokee lore, these spirits are powerful and benevolent, but are also to be held in high regard. In some cases, the spirits are described as very small, at heights under two feet, and others are described as very tall, upwards of seven feet in height. Wow. The, yeah, the Cherokee believe that the Nunehi protect the forests, that they will help lost travelers on their way, like people who just are lost in the woods, whatever, mm. uh, but they'll vanish in the doorway once the travelers arrive at their intended destination before anyone can see their faces. So they'll like accompany them on their journey, help guide mm. them home, walk them up to their front door, and then just vanish. Ooh. They're generally depicted as beautiful and well-dressed in specific Nunehi clothing. Other fair folk of the Cherokee is the Yunwi Sundi. So I'm so sorry. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. But these guys, unlike the Nunehi, will occasionally allow themselves to be seen, but usually prefer to reveal themselves as shadows darting through the forest. Oh, that's creepy. Those guys also have a signature giggle that separates them from the Nunehi, uh, who prefer their specific Nunehi song as opposed to laughing. Oh my gosh. Okay, that like gave me goosebumps. Like, <laughs> that's that's a little too uh, hide behindy for mm, my liking. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. For generations, Cherokee told stories of the Nunehi playing their songs late into the night. But anytime the Cherokee would seek out the source of the Nunehi song, as soon as they would approach, the sound of the music would stop for a split second and then would be suddenly coming from a different direction, far off in a totally different area of the forest. What? So they would they would be like aw like aw awakened uh -huh. in the middle of the night to the sound of the Nunehi song. Uh -huh. So there would be like drumming, singing, okay. all that so kind, kind of stuff. Of, so they would go to track it down. Yeah. And as they would approach the area where the sound was coming from, it would stop in an instant. It would be like dead silent for a second. And then suddenly it would start back up again, but from somewhere way far off in the forest, yeah. like way far away. So, okay. My, my surprise is because that reminds me of a very specific scene in The Hobbit. Oh, where tell me in, in the book, they're, I haven't read they're, it in forever. they're traveling through, um, this, this wood and, uh, without building up all of the context of everything they're the whole party's traveling through and they hear this music and they, they, they went off the trail, which they weren't supposed to do, but mm -hmm. they did because they were drawn by the music and all this Ooh. and they see the music. Or they hear the music and then they they see the party that's going on. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of elves, and they step in to like the clearing that they're in. And the second they step into it, it goes totally pitch black. Like every like Ooh. they none of them can see all of a sudden. And there's like a ruckus sound of like like a short ruckus sound of like clearing everything out. Yeah. And then um Bilbo or whoever it is gets a gets a light of some sort they, they light a torch or something uh -huh. and they look around and it's like totally empty and dead silent Creepy. and then they yeah and then they like keep they've like find each other because then like the pitch black like 
threw everybody off and just stay on the trail. They, right, right, right. But then <laughs> they keep walking. Sorry, everybody. This is this is a Lord of the Rings <laughs> and the Hobbit podcast now. They keep walking and they find the party again, and they sneak up on it, and the same thing basically happens. But, oh wow, that's but, but crazy. It's, it's yes, and it's very Tolkien, and it's and it's and not McClurian. In its uh, storytelling, in its jaunt, <laughs> yes, and, but like it surprised me to hear it this story told because it's a very similar yeah. experience to that of like this whole thing just all of a sudden vanishing. Yeah, you know, it is really super interesting. interesting. So the Nunehi also prefer offerings of tobacco smoke, food, music, and things like that in order to gain their favor. So if the Cherokee want assistance from the Nunehi, they would have to make those kinds of offerings. It's believed that they reside in the most remote areas of the Appalachian wilderness, near lone water sources, and at the tippy top of the highest of the Appalachian mountains. So the Yunwe Sundi, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'm just going to call them by their uh, other names. So these guys are a bit more of a mixed bag. They're typically separated into three groups. The Rock Clan, who is known for being almost exclusively malicious and are always ready to dish out sweet revenge if they believe that they have been wronged. Hmm. So the Rock Clan are believed to have introduced illness into mankind because they had been disrespected by the Cherokee. Hmm. They also have been known to steal Cherokee children in order to keep their bloodline going. So like they're real devious. Yeah, jeez. Dubious even. Yeah. There's also the Laurel clan who tend to be more joyful and playful, but they can also be little tricksters. They can coexist peacefully with people and enjoy playing simple tricks on people just for fun, such as tangling your fishing line, hiding your arrows, <laughs> or tripping you on a walking path through the wilderness. So I kind of like those guys. And yeah, I also, yeah. I really like that that's a legend Yeah, where it's like anytime some like minor misfortune befalls you, like you can't <laughs> find one of your shoes. It, it's no. definitely the Laurel clan. Yeah. Like they've done it, which I kind of love that. <laughs> so the Dogwood clan is the most benevolent of the Yunwe Sunday. They definitely prefer to be left alone, but will offer help to humans when it's needed. These are often the spirits that the Cherokee medicine men would call on during their various rituals. Hmm. Various other indigenous peoples have their own versions of the fair folk. And over time, the Cherokee fair folklore blended with the Faelor brought over from the Scots-Irish settlers and became a great source of some of the many extremely interesting superstitions that were born in Appalachia. Hmm. It's believed that fair folk were generally more powerful than any human, and so if a human was to marry and procreate with one, their offspring would go on to become the village healer or seer. If you're outside in the woods and you're trying to figure out if the fair folk have been out partying, keep your eyes peeled for a fairy circle a perfect circle of mushrooms, which is a sure sign that fairies have been dancing the night away in that very circle. <laughs> if you happen upon a fairy circle, you should stand in the middle of it and you'll have a wish granted. Ooh. I've also heard never, ever <laughs> breach the fairy circle. Don't right. do it. So don't right. listen to me on either of those because right. I don't know. Just, Just follow your heart. It, that's like the only time I'm ever going <laughs> to give that advice. <laughs> if the fire in your hearth burns with any blue in the flames, that's a sign that good fairies are watching over you. Ooh, interesting. At the end of a long day, be sure not to throw out any of like anything. So like sweepings or water. So you don't accidentally hit a fairy and make them angry. You do not want to cross the fair folk. Mm. So there's a ton of fairy lore that comes from Appalachia, but I'm sure that we'll discuss that whenever we finally 
get to doing an entire like deep dive yeah. of the Fae, which I've been saying that we would do mm-hmm. for like a year now. Right, right. Once so. again, another one of those things that's super intensive. It is so intensive. Super deep and also really fun, but takes some planning. Well, even so. with what I just described, I basically gave no context for the European folklore, the Irish and the Scottish. Right. Fair right. folklore or fae folklore, excuse me, and very minimal of the fae <laughs> folklore of the Cherokee. Right. So it's like, there's just so much and it's so fascinating. And there's a lot of overlap in them, which is yeah. interesting, which is why I think that those legends blended together so mm. cohesively when these people were getting together and having conversations about their backgrounds and their beliefs. Yeah. And why they stuck, mm-hmm. like they stuck in practical ways. And I didn't get into superstitions because I thought, we should do, if we do more Appalachian ones, like I would kind of fit them in where they make sense to fit them in. But there's so much superstition Mm. and it's interesting how much of it goes into practical day-to-day stuff. Like you might go find a toadstool ring in the, in the woods (laughs) while you're out just choring. Right. You know, that kind of thing. And don't throw your sweepings outside so you don't hit a fairy. Yeah. That kind of stuff. But then there's also very zoomed in super specific stuff like death customs. And Mm. if it goes silent at a party for more than 20 seconds, then that means angels just pass through and like that kind of stuff. There's so many Hmm. uh, superstitions that were kind of built. Interesting. With the merging of cultures that I think is so fascinating to me. I would. So I have a weird question. Okay. I'll do my best. Because you use you use the two words for the same sorts of things of fair and fay. What's yeah. the difference? Is there a difference, or is it just regional? So okay, there are different terms that different cultures will say the 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 fair folk, the fairies, whatever prefer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually broke the rule as I wrote this one because in Cherokee legend, and then kind of by extension Appalachian legend. They don't like to be called fairies. They want to be called the we folk or the helpful folk or the immortals oh, or interesting. the fair folk or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the way that I have been using fair folk and fae is pretty interchangeable. Okay. So there are a lot of different terms that can, that can be used interchangeably while others are more just kind of like force of habit or possibly regional. Sure. Okay. Okay. And so. Yeah. So you're using more of a layman's term sort of, sort yeah. of uh, habit. Yeah. In that way mm-hmm. here, but there's a lot of specifics and that's okay well, for yeah. another time. <laughs> well, and it also, uh, that's a really great question though, too, because in uh, Cherokee culture, generally speaking, anything that would be considered like the Nunehi, like the, the fair folks would be considered spiritual beings. Mm. And like some, some of the Cherokee legends that I found said that they're believed to be like older than the land. They're believed to be very ancient and like they don't, they don't die unless they're destroyed kind of thing. Wow. So yeah, Yeah. once again, we got to dig into the whole thing because it's so interesting. interesting. Yeah. And a lot of the times the, the fair folks function in storytelling was to describe everyday things that there wasn't an answer for, Mm -hmm. uh, to describe a string of bad luck or Mm. a string of good luck. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so interesting that over time, these little devices have been, deployed in so many different cultures and they're just fun to like feel like they're coming to life when you're hearing the stories. Right. So I encourage everybody, I'm going to, at some point, when, whenever we do the fairy episode, I'm going to link some of my favorite things that I've read because they're, <laughs> they really are like, they give you that immersive feeling hmm. and it's really fun. That's really so, cool. okay. 
This is actually going to be the final story for the episode. And for this one, I thought it would be fun to dig into a popular Appalachian ghost story. Ooh, yes. We love ghost stories. We love a ghost story. So we're going to talk about the story of Lucy on Roaring Fork Road, which is a tongue twister. That is a tongue twister. Wow. On a cold winter's eve in 1909, a young man named Foster was traveling near the Smoky Mountains in the present-day area of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, when he stopped to water his horse at Roaring Fork Stream. Hmm. Just as he was preparing to set off and continue his travels, Foster noticed a beautiful young woman in a white dress walking along the path. He rode over to her and noticed that she wasn't wearing any shoes. She was also extremely hot to the touch, which automatically raised concerns that the young woman was very ill and needed medical help. Mm. And so Foster asked the young woman if she was okay and if she needed help. The young woman told Foster that she had sprained her ankle on her hike and that she needed a ride back to her home. She introduced herself only as Lucy. Ready to help this beautiful stranger, Foster helped Lucy onto his horse, and she directed him to her parents' home that was located nearby. He dropped her off outside and rode off into the night. By the time the next day rolled around, Foster couldn't help but feeling smitten over the beautiful and charming woman, and so he decided to ride back to Lucy's parents' home in order to ask for permission to court their daughter. Hmm. When Foster knocked at the door to Lucy's home, an older couple answered. Assuming this was Lucy's parents, Foster began telling them about his experience with finding Lucy on the road and bringing her home. He continued on first by asking about how she was doing, and then he just decided to schmooze the parents a little bit, talking about how stricken Mm -hmm. he had Mm -hmm. become by her beauty and her charm, and he requested permission to court their daughter. The faces (laughs) of the couple fell. Their daughter, who was in fact named Lucy, died a year earlier. That's not possible, Foster protested, because when I touched her hands and when she rested her body against me as we rode, she was as warm as a tea kettle and very much alive. Mm. At that time in history, there were no electric lights in that extremely remote part of Tennessee, and so the family only had access to candlelight. Lucy was always very enchanted by the flames, and one day she had accidentally knocked a candlestick over in the family cabin, burning the whole thing to the ground before she could escape. Foster was bewildered at this revelation. He held his tongue, though, concerning his many conflicting feelings of this news, and instead decided to point out that the nearby cabin looked to be in great condition. The father told him that they had rebuilt it after Lucy died in the old one, and that he'd be happy to take Foster to Lucy's grave to prove to him that his daughter was dead. And there, beneath a diseased and dying white pine tree, laid a simple gravestone with Lucy's name right there on it. What? In the more than a century since the origin of this story, along a five and a half mile stretch of the Roaring Fork Motor Nature Trail, a mysterious young woman in white is seen wandering along the road. Sometimes she's stumbling around, appearing to be injured. Other times she appears to simply be hitching a ride, but she's always seen as very beautiful and always barefoot. Hmm. And almost exclusively is only seen in the early morning when there's a fog blanketing the ground. People who claim to have seen Lucy's spirit describe an immediate cold sensation throughout their body. The hairs on the back of their necks will stand on end. The people driving along this particular portion of road may be locals, and most locals are very familiar with Lucy's ghost and her story, Hmm. or they may be travelers enjoying the beautiful scenery as they head to one of the historic cabins nearby. 
Anyone heading towards the cabins when they see Lucy describes the feeling of the sudden certainty that they need to stay far away from the cabins, choosing to abandon Mm. their destination entirely. So could the ghost be warning them of some unseen danger in the cabins, which are believed to be haunted and much like by much less helpful spirits? Or is there another reason why blood runs cold and fear wins the day at the sight of the spirit of Lucy? Nobody (laughs) quite knows for sure. But that is what I have for you today. That is, I love that story. Yeah, that's a good old fashioned Tennessee ghost story. Love that. Wow. Oh my gosh. That really, that got my... My uh, my skin crawling a little bit Good. a couple different times. Yeah, yay! Ooh. I got you with the Bigfoot story too. Yeah, you did. There were there were a few that I I just didn't have a chance to say. But oh man, I I'm very much interested in all of that. This this has been a really fun episode to me. Good. Um, also, if I can say one of the one of my favorite places I've ever been to is this like really scenic overlook. Um, I forget what it's called. Isn't it the Cumberland Gap? Didn't you tell me about this the other I th- day? I think so. I think I think there's a specific kind of like lookout point Okay. over the Cumberland Gap mm, that I okay. went to one time. Kentucky? Yeah. I think? Yes, question I think mark? So. Or like, I think we went into Virginia or West Virginia or something okay. to do it. But either way, it's like the actual scenery is burned into my memory. Mm. It's incredible. And that that's the kind of thing that when I think of Appalachia, my mind goes, oh yeah, that's what it looks like there. And it's crazy. You know? Yeah, it's so beautiful. So I have a context for it just yeah. from being there. And totally. it's one of those places that I would gladly go back to because it was Same, really I want to go. So. Well, and I mean, I'm sure that we have people listening that, are well, like very familiar with Appalachia. Yeah, yeah. That love all the stories and the superstitions and all of that, that are like, why didn't you cover the brown mountain lights? Why didn't you cover the moon-eyed people? Fear not, guys. Oh, wow. Don't worry. Those all sound awesome. I feel like I just want to keep talking about Appalachia forever. What about the granny witches? Oh, <laughs> I've got plans for them too. Oh, wow. Like, fear not, you guys. All There's sorts of things. So many. Beings, creatures, peoples. So if you stick around for tomorrow's episode, when that one drops. Oh. There might be a little bit more Appalachian storytelling to be heard. A little sneak peek right there. Yes. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. If you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a glowing five-star review. We actually got stopped today by somebody who told us that they... Every single episode, <laughs> at the end of every single episode, they go and they hit a five star rating just just to make sure that they're they're coming through. So that's a shout Love out to that. Kate for yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> for making sure that we knew that. And now now everybody can jump on the bandwagon of right. five starring every single individual episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? Why not? You're already there. Yeah, what's the difference? <laughs> um. If you haven't already as well, make sure that you're following us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. Uh, And if you want to follow us even more directly, even more intensely, Mm. get all all the goods, you got to do it over on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section 
or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters on Patreon get access to all of our content ad-free, as well as two exclusive episodes each month that are only available on Patreon. Nice. All right. Well, everybody with that, we will see you later this week, tomorrow. Tomorrow even, on Halloween. On Halloween for another doozy. Thank you guys. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.